Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning again. How are you guys? Good? Awesome. I, I just uh, by way of announcements real quick. Um, after I'm done preaching and, and I pray, um, we are going to stick around here just for a moment, a little family business. But uh, TJ, our worship director, um, we mentioned this months ago, um, his fiance is in Raleigh, North Carolina with a job down there. And TJ has been looking uh, for a job down there and is hoping to move down there. Well, today is his last Sunday. A little louder for him. I don't think he can. Thank you. And, uh, but after, after I'm done preaching, before we all leave the room, we're going to invite um, TJ to come up and we're going to pray for him and send him off. And then after service, downstairs, TJ's going to hang out just for a moment to you know, say goodbye to a few people. If you want to hang out and just um, give him a $50 handshake, whatever you want to do. <laughs> You know, bless him on his way out the door, I guess. He would appreciate it, I'm sure. He, he's driving to North Carolina, pulling a U-Haul trailer, and um, we're so proud of him. He's so great. So um, anyways, I don't want to get ahead of myself, because uh, if I do, I start to cry a little bit, and it turns into a thing. So um, Masons, welcome back. Love you guys. Love you guys. Come. Um, Terry's like, why am I getting applause? I have no idea. But we're, we're glad you're here. Um, I want to get started. We're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you, Luke chapter 7. We've been going through a study in Luke for some time now. We just like to take a portion of Scripture and just work our way through it. And so we're in the book of Luke. And I've scheduled out Luke as we do just a little bit each week, taking breaks for special events like Christmas and holidays, Easter, and maybe a couple other teachings in the summer. But we're going to be in Luke probably through 2026 or so. So we're going to be here for a while So get comfortable with the book. And that's our whole hope is that you would get familiar with the book. So if you have a Bible with you, Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be reading today, um, working through verses 36 through 50. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback one, a black one underneath a seat close to you. You can use that Bible if you'd like. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you. We want to give it to you as a gift. And you can follow along there. But we'll put the words on the screen as well. And I'll just read all of these verses. It's a long sort of passage here, but it tells a great story. So let's take a look. Starting here in verse 36. And it says, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. He invited him over for dinner. And so he goes to the Pharisee's house, and he reclines at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask full of ointment or oil. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, well, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is, what, a sinner. And Jesus answering said to to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he answered, well, say it then, teacher. And then Jesus teaches this parable. It's the parable of two debtors. He says this, verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more, he asks. And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning to look at the woman and still speaking to Simon, Jesus says this. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not even anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much." And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him, the guests at this party, if you will, they began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now you can go in peace. Fascinating story. I love that line. Um, You know, he turns to the woman, verse 50, and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we were finishing singing this last song, um, we were singing, we go from glory to glory to glory. I'm just reminded of the journey that we have in Christ, that he is forever moving us forward. And there is, there's no take backs with him. Like he doesn't like come all up in your life, but for a moment to then abandon you when things get harder, when you find it difficult to worship him and love on him the way he's worthy for sure. But he doesn't like leave us behind, but he is continually pulling us along. And to the woman, he even says, now go in peace. And so for those of you who are struggling with that, that sometimes you're like, man, I used to be so on fire for the Lord. I used to love Jesus so much. I used to do all these things. You serve in the church, you read my Bible, all these things. And you've just grown cold in that. Hear me, go in peace. He's not leaving you. Go with what you have, but go with him. Is that helpful to anyone? All right, I'll start my sermon. Here we go. Anthony Bourdain. Any Anthony Bourdain fans? He was an American celebrity chef. He was a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, became an executive chef in Manhattan, He was also a pretty prolific writer, a great writer of nonfiction and fiction, and he wrote some cooking books and books about cooking and all kinds of stuff. And that's actually what led him to become a household name. Back in 2000, he wrote a book uh, titled Kitchen Confidential that was released. And after the success of that book, he began hosting a world traveling TV series. You might have seen it on the Food Network channel or the Travel Channel even. And he became known for traveling the world and going to these faraway lands, visiting these countries and sitting with the locals and celebrities and other people, politicians, all kinds of people, and just enjoying the local cuisine. And I remember watching some of these um, uh, shows and I was just struck by how, (laughs) how awesome dinner is with someone else. Like when you sit down across the table between passing the butter plate and the salt and pepper and having conversations and just something transpires between two people or a group of people when you're sitting down and having dinner. And it was during these shows where you could see the power of what two people were experiencing as they have conversations over this meal. There is this unity, I would argue, of humanity that is exposed during dinner. After all, we're just people 
who need food to survive. It's like the lowest common denominator. We all need this. And to sit across a table with someone brings people together. There's even a, a subset of public diplomacy called gastro diplomacy. <laughs> I could get behind that type of diplomacy, I'm just saying. Where they would actually take political adversaries, enemies, if you will, and they would bring them together to a, a, a mutual... Um, a third party location, you know, mutual location, and they would share a meal together. And the people that, that participate in this type of diplomacy, they have a, a slogan that says this, the easiest way to win hearts and minds is through the stomach. So it should come as no surprise that many conflicts have been resolved after the parties have gathered to eat together. Now, Anthony Bourdain died tragically in 2018, but not before his show, he showed us an aspect of the human condition. And that is this, that there's a sameness of humanity found by eating together. Eating is such a big part of life. So it should come as no surprise that it also plays a prominent role in scripture. Did you know that? One of the spiritual practices Christians are encouraged to participate in is reading the Bible. So how many people here would say that reading the Bible is an important thing to do as a Christian? Yeah, you can raise your hand or not, but it's true, right? It is. That is something we should do. And so when you study the Bible, what you'll find over time, there are certain themes that just develop through Scripture. And you don't often see them first glance. It takes a while of reading through Scripture several times. And, and maybe while you're reading through something in the Old Testament, it reminds you of something in the New Testament. And, and, and again, through careful study, you'll begin to see a thread that is woven together and certain themes come out. And one of the themes that we see is eating in the Bible. There's another theme that will be familiar to you. It's called salvation. How many people have heard of salvation? Yeah, that's a theme in the Bible. Praise God for that. We see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see where God is rescuing his people. When they cannot rescue themselves, God intervenes on their behalf and rescues them. There's tons of stories in the Old Testament where that happens, tons in the New even, and it all points to the Savior who is Jesus Christ who can do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, and that is save ourselves. We cannot die for our own sins, yes? You've tried. It just doesn't work. Jesus has to do that for us. And so anyways, God's providence is, is revealed in Scripture, and Jesus saves his people. Another theme we see in the Bible is provision. This shows where God shows us how he provides for his people. And one of the ways that we experience that is through eating and drinking. Say amen. The Bible has a lot to say about eating and drinking. In fact, the very first time, this blew me away. I read this this week, and you can fact check me if you want, but I'm right. Uh, anyways, it says, the very first time we read where God uses the word command is back in the story of the beginnings in Genesis. He creates heavens and the earth and all that is, right? You know the story of creation. He places mankind, humanity, in the middle of this garden called Eden, and he invites them to participate in his creation, telling them to tend the ground, to be fruitful and multiply. That sounds fun, Yes. <laughs> one guy, <laughs> the, the newlywed says, yes, sir. <laughs> it's a whole lot of fun. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> There's an invitation to join him, but then he gives a command in Genesis chapter two, verse 16. You can look it up. And he says this, he says that he's, he invites them to eat the fruit of the tree of um, all the trees in the garden. There's a command to eat of the fruit that he has given them. So, of course, we know what happens when Adam and Eve eat from the wrong tree. Long story, won't go into all of that. But it allows sin to come into the world. And this act of rebellion has been wreaking havoc on our world ever since. But have you ever stopped to consider why sin entered in the world through eating and not through something else? 
Like, wasn't it like, hey, don't jump that fence or climb that tree or this and it's, it's, they ate something and their rebellion brought sin into the world. Have you ever considered that? There, there's a, a theme of eating in scripture. I could go into all of this. There's a theology of eating, which I'm gonna get into next week. I'll tell you that right now. Um, but if we keep with the theme of eating and drinking, there are a lot of feasts that we see instituted in the Old Testament. These celebratory times were instituted to remember the goodness of God, and they were enjoyed several times every year, constantly reminding God's people of the goodness of God. One of these feasts was something called Passover, which Orthodox Jews still celebrate today, the Passover feast. Just before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, just before he died, he tells his disciples that he desperately wants to share the Passover meal with them so he can, what, eat with them. We might argue that he just wants to celebrate the Passover, and that's true. But Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover in his own words by eating with them. There's an interesting line in the book of Revelation where Jesus says this, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. After Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was given to empower the believers. The gospel message, salvation through Jesus Christ, that message began to spread. New believers are coming to faith. The church is growing in the first century. And we learned that the early church was committed to four things. You can read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They're committed to four things. The apostles' teaching, so they listened to teaching. They were um, committed to fellowship, which is gathering together with other believers. We might call that, this is fellowship, would you agree? Yeah, we're getting together with other believers. They were committed to breaking bread with one another. They shared meals together and they prayed together. There are four marks of the church. When people talk about making like modern contemporary church look more like the old, you know, first century church, um, I can't say I disagree when it, comes to, when it comes to eating and breaking bread and fellowshipping with one another. Um, when Stacy and I were younger, uh, we had young kids. We used to camp a lot, and we used to camp with other families. And uh, at the campground, there's like you kind of prepare your own meal and you kind of eat and stuff. But it always bothered me when people like the campsite over that we were camping with would eat their meal at like 4:30 and didn't invite us to join them. Like, and we were prepping ours for five o'clock or something. Like, if we could just come together and eat together, like, I, I desire to, to share meals. By the way, Nate, by the way, sorry for last week. Nate invited me to lunch last week and I couldn't make it. But, but um, we want to share meals with one another. And that's what the church looks like, is all I'm trying to say. And in our Christian tradition, there are two ordinances of the Christian faith. The first is baptism, right? Christians should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Yes. And the second is the Lord's Supper, where we take drink and we take bread and we remember what God has done. There's something profound, something spiritual about eating and drinking. And it's a fascinating point to consider. And it's something that I've only recently discovered and I'm looking to learn more about. To be honest with you, this is one of the reasons why I love studying for sermons. I love reading. I love learning about this stuff. This week, I discovered a book called Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating <laughs> by Norman Wurzba. In it, he writes this, food is God's love made nutritious and delicious, given for the good of each other. Isn't that wonderful? The mundane act of eating is thus a daily invitation 
to move responsibly and gratefully within this given life. It is a summons, he writes, to commune with the divine life that is presupposed and made manifest in every bite. And to some, this is just a tough thing to swallow, haha, <laughs> pun intended. Because they just see food as just merely nutrients to be absorbed, necessary to sustain life, and nothing more. But Wurzba would argue this point. He says, this is just an impoverished description of food. While it is true that we can speak of bread as just a collection of material like water, salt, yeast, and flour, if we reduce food to just this level, it's like opening a letter and judging it to be nothing more than a page covered with random markings. And rather than reading the marks that say, I love you to communicate a life-altering pronouncement, inviting a response, all one person sees are characters on a page worthy of little more than a passing notice. And if we treat food the same way, that can happen. He says, similarly, we can look at a meal and see only a random assortment of nutrients, oblivious to the grace of God made manifest in it. We can forget that food is one of God's basic and abiding means for expressing divine provision and care. Partake, to partake of a meal is to participate in a divine communication in which God, the eternal host, says something like this. Are you listening? I love you. I love you. And I want, I want you to be well taken care of, and I want to share with you the joys of my life. When we sit down to eat, the story is greater than just fuel. Fast food has robbed us of this. Not that it's not tasty, it's delicious sometimes. But we race through life and we, we, we miss the opportunity to commune with the Lord when we eat. All of that is just a setup for what Luke is doing for us in this story. He's telling us the story of a man named Simon, a Pharisee, who invites Jesus in for a meal. Of all of the Gospels, Luke writes about eating more than any other one. In fact, I think there's 60-some such references in Luke's Gospel, which comes out to be, to be about two and a half reference, references of eating and drinking per chapter in the book. So eating and drinking is not peripheral to the Gospel of Luke. It's an elemental, it's a, an important element, rather, to his story, and he wants us to understand that. When we eat together, when people are eating in the Bible, it's, a, it's a, an invitation to see God at work in the lives of his people. It's an undertone. It's, the, it's, um, it's something we would miss if we don't pause to consider what's actually happening here. Is everyone tracking with me? I'm going to get to the story here in a minute. Um, anyways, so this story is what happens when Jesus confronts a religious leader in his own house over a meal. And this story is ultimately about God and his people. It's a story of reconciliation made available, and it takes place during dinner. Now, there's three main characters in this story. There's a Pharisee, Jesus, and the woman from a city who's a sinner. Verse 36 says this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and so he goes to the Pharisee's house, and he reclines at a table. You know, in Scripture, we see Jesus is oftentimes criticized for eating with sinners. Why is that? You ever considered that? It's because the religious thought of his day believed that coming in close contact with sinners would, is, would somehow make you unclean. Eating with someone established this sort of covenant relationship or friendship, which normally signified approval. So if you would sit down to eat with a sinner, you're approving of them is the argument as it goes. 
And so Jesus would oftentimes sit with people who were sinners, and he was criticized for doing so. But here we see a religious leader, a Pharisee inviting Jesus to dinner, and he's doing so, I consider, want you to consider that he's, this Pharisee is doing so because he wants Jesus to validate him, that he's somehow doing things right. Look at me, Jesus. Come to my house, Jesus. Sit with me, Jesus, and let everyone see you walk into my house, Jesus, so they'll know that I'm doing things right. You're validating what I'm saying. And so Jesus, in great loving care and compassion, he says yes to the invitation, goes to his house, reclines at the table. The table back then was typically shorter. It's not like a table in our dining room where you sit on chairs. They would have a low table and they would recline kind of on their their sides, on their left elbow typically, so their right hand could reach out and steal food from the other person and eat it, right? And their feet were typically out here because they were open-toed Birkenstocks and their feet were nasty. Anyone, right? If you wear Birkenstocks, gross, just throwing it out there, gross. Maybe take a bath, I don't know. So (laughs) this is what happens when I get off notes. I start saying things that I don't mean because I own Birkenstocks. I mean, I'm just going for laughter at this point. But Jesus is sitting there eating a meal with this um, Pharisee. And then verse 37 says, but sometime during the meal, a woman had joined them. Now, this is not uncommon in their day. Don't think of like uh, his house is closed up and there's only a couple people eating dinner. These things are like sort of block party affairs. There's a whole bunch of people moving around, but Jesus and a few guests are sitting around the table with the Pharisee. And there's a bunch of people along the walls hidden in the shadows. And at some point, this woman makes herself seen. This woman is from the city. She's known by the people there. And she was a sinner. And she had learned that Jesus was going to be there. And so she brings this flask of ointment with her. And standing behind Jesus, something overcomes her. We, we have an understanding that she's probably experienced Jesus before. She's probably heard him speak before. He's probably already spoken to her before. There, there's, we get the impression that he, she knows him somehow. And, and she knows he's going to be there. So she wants to, like, maybe worship's the wrong word, but she wants to honor him. So she brings this really expensive perfume with her to this meal with the express intention to pour it on Jesus, of course. But while Jesus is talking to the Pharisee, when this godly moment is happening, all of a sudden, the tears begin to move in her face. Like, I don't know if what Jesus is saying is just leaning in with compassion, talking to the people in the room. I don't know. But all of a sudden, she can't take it anymore. And they begin to drip onto Jesus' feet. And and seeing that, she's like, oh, no, she lets down her hair and begins to dry his feet. And she's kissing his feet. And then she takes this oil and pours it all over his feet. Luke does not give us this woman's name. For us to understand the story, it is not needed. But we do know that she is from the city and was a sinner, and it is presumed the Pharisee and the other guests know who she is. Scholars believe that her profession was that of prostitute. She made her living by sinning with other men, some of them married, I'm sure. And think about this for a moment. And so that expensive jar of ointment that she brought with her, that probably cost a year's wage, those wages were earned sinning with other men. And she used that money to buy this perfume that she's then going to give to Jesus as an offering. It's as if she brings her offering bought with dirty money to Jesus. But she had experienced his mercy and his love before, and she wanted to honor him with it. Perhaps you and I could learn a little bit from her motivation. No matter how bad or how terrible the acts that we commit, 
Jesus still stands with outstretched arms looking to embrace us with love and acceptance. But are we willing to bring our messiness to him? Are we shamed into thinking he wouldn't accept it? You don't think Jesus knew where the oil came from? You don't think Jesus knew how she earned money to pay for it? He knows everything. So the scent of this perfume immediately fills the room and now everyone is standing at attention going, what is happening here? She's come out of the shadows. Verse 39, and the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this and said to himself, well, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is um, and who was touching him for she is a sinner. I find it fascinating that, that she is known um, for who she is as a sinner and what sort of woman she is. <laughs> like everyone knows who she is. And he's saying, Simon the Pharisee says that if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know that this person should not come in contact with him and he would, he would stop her in a moment. And he doesn't say this out loud, which is a fascinating aspect of the story. The, the Pharisee just thinks about it. He puts that in his mind. And then Jesus responds to him. Jesus, in true prophetic response, reads his mind and answers his objection, verse 40, and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, then say it. Notice in Jesus, there's no harsh tone. Doesn't appear to be one. There's no condemning language directed at the religious man. In fact, we see Jesus use his name for the first time in almost a compassionate way. He says, I want to tell you something, Simon. Like he just reaches into the judgy mind and judgy heart of this religious leader and says, you, you have something you need to learn. I suspect God would be doing something similar in our room today. Some of us would think that there are some people not worthy to sit around the feet of Jesus. Some people still hold to this religious idea that, that religious or righteous people should not acquaint themselves with unrighteous sinners. I think this was the argument that um, a church I used to attend a long time ago. Um, I went to a bar one time. I was in a band, and uh, we played in the band. And um, peop- played, I played in a band at the bar on a Saturday night. And then on Sunday, I went in to lead worship because that's what I did. I was a worship guy. And some people in the church had found out that I had gone to the bar the night before. And it really upset some of them. Like, I'm not drinking. I'm not carousing, carousing, carousing. I'm not doing any of those things. I'm, in fact, if you were at the, the, um, the bar, we actually played a couple worship tunes. We snuck them in there in the middle of the ACDC and all the other stuff. We stuck, played a little Chris Tomlin. Anyone? Anyone? Oh, school. Let's go. Um, but but the, one of the arguments came back. was like, well, you know, we shouldn't be around people like that. And I went, Whoa. like, I, do you not think the Holy Spirit inside of you is stronger than any sinner outside of you? <laughs> I'm not saying risk, be risky. Like if you have issues, stay away. Like you put up guardrails. The Holy Spirit will lead you. I can't go to those places. I can't call that person. I can't visit those places, right? You know, I didn't have those guardrails. They just wanted to put those guardrails on me. And I think it's birthed out of this idea that righteous people don't hang around sinners. And if that were true, then Jesus did it wrong. If that were true, then Jesus did it wrong. Your churches can be known for their unacceptance of others that don't look like them. 
Um, all right, here we go. So um, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Reagan, plays uh, volleyball for Illinois Wesleyan. They came in town this weekend to play Milliken. Boo. Sorry, Milliken. <laughs> Which Milliken won? Yay. No. Boo. No, we're not happy about that. But the Wesleyan volleyball team came in town early, and we cooked them a meal here at the church. And we did like a chipotle chicken and steak, a big chipotle bar. It was wonderful. And... Um, as I was grilling the, the steak and the chicken on the sidewalk, um, a homeless guy comes, comes by. And we know him. His name's Terry. Terry, you know Terry. Terry came by. And, um, and he goes, what you cooking? And I said, you know, it's chicken steak. I told him the whole story. We chatted for like 15, 20 minutes. And he's like, well, hey, I got to run to the library. It's getting ready to rain. I don't want to be caught in the rain. But um, what time's the food going to be done? And I just, I kind of laughed it off because we have that sort of, you know, relationship. Anyways, uh, we're, we're eating with the volleyball team. We're having a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm showing a few of the players and the coach like upstairs in this room because they wanted to see what the church looked like and everything. And when I go back downstairs um, and I see sitting at the table with the volleyball players is Terry. <laughs> like Terry had legit just walked into the church and made a plate and was sitting down eating with the volleyball team. I'm losing my mind. I'm like, who is in charge of this place? And it's me. <laughs> like I'm the one, I'm the one in charge. And I'm like, and I, I left the door unlocked and he came in. And, and hear, hear me when I say this, and I was so overjoyed that no one batted an eye that Terry was in the room. I mean, there was plenty of food. My wife batted an eye, just so you know. But <laughs> only because she, it was a volleyball thing, it's whatever. She loves him and he's great. But, but okay, some churches wouldn't do that. Some wouldn't. And I, it's not to be judgy or nothing, but it's just, but when Jesus looks at Simon and he speaks with compassion, he doesn't say, listen, jerk. You think you got it all together? You have no idea what this woman's gone through. You know why she's working at that job? Because she doesn't have a husband to provide for her. And if she doesn't do this, she can't eat. Well, I don't know, right? He doesn't do any of that. In fact, he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then he tells them this parable, which this parable is only recorded in Luke. This parable, you can't find this in Matthew, Mark, or John. It's a parable of two debtors. It's a fictional story intended to teach a message to the hearer. And in this case, it's Simon and all of the guests sitting at the table. And he begins verse 41 saying, a certain money lender, lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is about a day's wage. So a guy owes about a year and a half's worth of wages and one guy about a month and a half. They're both in debt, right? But the debtor knows they can't pay it back, so he just writes off the debt. And Jesus asked the question, which of these two do you think would love the, the debtor more? And Simon, like sticking his toe in the water, says, well, I suppose the one who, who probably had the most debt removed or whatever, and Jesus says, yeah. Now, the two debtors in this story, they're fictional. They're just made-up people. But Jesus is using this story to describe the two actual debtors sitting before him. And I said, too, we know the woman from the city is a sinner, but we could also say that Simon is as well. There are two debtors sitting before Jesus, the Pharisee and the woman with no name. According to what the Bible tells us, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us are in some debt that cannot be paid by our own. Sin has done something. It causes death to overtake us. It separates us from God. And no amount of trying, nothing that we can do can ever change that. Nothing can erase our sin except for the work that Jesus Christ does. 
Jesus knows this, that he is the Lamb of God sent by the Father to take away the sins of the world. And the Pharisee wants to stand, or sit rather, in a place of judgment over the woman who's a sinner. And Jesus lovingly says, bro, you have it too. It's like season one of The Walking Dead. Anyone? Or was it season two? It's been a long time. But remember like when, when Rick found out that they were already infected? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Come on, let's somebody. Right? You thought you had to be bitten by a zombie to become a zombie. That's not true. All you had to do was die and the virus would take over. That's sin for us. You don't need to be bitten by a sinner to become sinful. You is sinful. <laughs> That's what you is. And sometimes religious people see it last. Bless them. They just see it last because they think all of the things they're doing is somehow earning them favor with God. They think they're buying their salvation through prayers and alms and all these things. And Jesus says, no. I don't know what I want to say here. Through the saving work of Jesus Christ, our sins can be, given, can be forgiven through faith, yes? Then we could be like the woman who's been forgiven much, and we could bring our best offering to God. Have, have you guys noticed how we're opening worship these days? We're opening with a call to worship. Have, have you guys noticed that? I did it this morning. Hey, let's repeat after me, the Lord, what, all the things. Um, here's what I want us to know as a church, that I, I think God is calling me to draw a line in the sand for the church. There are spectators who come to church and you are welcome to spectate and participate in everything we're doing or whatever. And then there are worshipers. There are those who treat the church as a commodity to be consumed and when it fits your schedule and when it works out for you and you can make it on time and all the things and when people don't irritate you that much or whatever and you didn't stay out too late the night before, you'll come and the whole deal. And then there are worshipers. And, and the line in the sand, for me, it's intended when we open with a call to worship, it's, it's just a gentle reminder, there's a purpose and an intention in our gathering today. And some of you aren't there yet, and that's fine. But some of you are, you just need reminded. There's a real reason you've come today. And it's not you, it's Jesus. There's a real reason we gather and laud his name and sing songs about him and try all the things that we do to focus our attention upon Jesus because he's worthy of it. And some of you just aren't there yet. Some of you know, and here, oh, but you're lazy. Or, or you're letting cares of this world choke out your worship. And we could be more like the woman who just, just being around Jesus is so moved that tears begin to flow. And she offers all that she has, dirty money perfume for him. And he accepts it. And we don't want to be the religious people who look down upon people who worship extravagantly. I intentionally wrote in our call to worship that we worship him through singing and dancing and clapping. I want you to notice I did not put tambourines in that list. <laughs> so if you have a case for your tambourine to bring to church, you can leave that at home. We do not, we actually do not 
worship. No, I'm kidding, but you see what I'm saying? My, it's a full embodied experience. We can meditate on him for sure, but he's, there's an invitation in the Psalms and elsewhere in scripture to worship the Lord with everything that we have. Stand to your feet, clap and sing his name and dance if you want and shout for joy all the work that God has done. Let the room be filled with the worship that you have for him. And the woman slinks out of the shadows and does something that changed the room. Like everyone smelled what she did. Um, in a good way, Terry, in a good way. Are we okay? We don't want to be people who hold back anything from the Lord. We also, thank you, Mary. Mary and I had a great conversation about this last week. Is we don't want to be just religious people who are doing rote tradition things and with no thought or motivation from our hearts. Like, I do not desire you for you to repeat things on the screen if they're not in your heart. It's gross. God doesn't care. I don't care. Like, if you're just saying it because the person next to you might be paying attention, screw them. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they think. But we know who Jesus is. And we will, we will proclaim him always here. And if you come to Renaissance, you will find Jesus here. I assure you, all roads point to Jesus because he's the one who can save us. And he's the one who's worthy of our worship. So we do not want to be like the Pharisee, be judgy. I'm skipping through all my things. And I think I'm done. Ish, ish, done ish. I, I do want to pray for us, and, and don't forget, I want to remind you that we want to bring TJ up in a moment and pray for him. So if you want to get your hearts ready for that, too. And um, in fact, while I pray, if you'd like to come up onto the platform um, when TJ comes out, if TJ's back, are you, is TJ here? I don't know where he is. But somebody find him, grab, go to the bathroom, get TJ, and bring him on stage <laughs> during our prayer. And then we're going to bless him on his way. But for us, let's gather together and pray. Bow your heads. If you're coming to the stage, come to the stage. I, you, if you want to come to the stage to pray for TJ, you come to the stage. I'm not inviting you, but this is your invitation. Come on, right? As we gather in your presence today, Lord, we are grateful for the wisdom and the guidance that we have received from your word, Lord. We thank you for the story of the Pharisee and the sinful woman and how Jesus Christ encounters them both. May the lessons and the insights that we have gleaned from this passage, may they inspire us and transform our lives. Lord, we acknowledge our sins and our own shortcomings. Just like the woman in the story, we come before you with contrite hearts seeking forgiveness and grace. Help us to realize the depth of your love and your mercy. You have forgiven us so much, Lord. We ask that you strengthen our faith, that we may continually seek you and love you with all of our hearts. And Lord, we pray for those around us that they too may experience the truth and the incredible love and forgiveness of, of Christ. God, open their hearts to the message of salvation through Jesus. He is our Savior and our Redeemer. May they come to know the peace that surpasses all understanding. God, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your provision of food and drink, which you have blessed us with. May we always remember that every meal is an invitation to commune with you and a reminder of your love and your care for us. 
And Lord, as we leave this place, we ask for your guidance and protection and help us to carry the message of your love and your forgiveness into the world, being a beacon of hope and light to those in need, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.